So, you know, one of the things I really appreciated about this week is that after the earthquakes and the whole... Uh, you know, our, we, we used mat, tape that didn't exactly hold it together. And after our ziggurat fell, the kids never called me on the fact that Steve and I put it together upside down. Apparently, ziggurats are not supposed to have the stairs above the room that you're trying to get up to. But we just figured, whatever, you know, it looks better that way anyway. Hey, if you are joining us, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here. So grateful you're here. And we are in a series that we're calling Tent Poles. And the heart of this series is simply to begin to look at our core beliefs, uh, the, the, the essentials that we are not willing to budge on. And, and we call them tent poles because anytime you walk into a tent and you've got these poles that hold the tent up. Thank you, Charlie. My wife brought me one too and it's that far, but that's too much effort. Um, <laughs> And if you walk into a tent, you've got these poles that hold it up, that create space for people to congregate under. And in the same way, we recognize that we are people from very different walks of life, very different socioeconomic or um, educational levels. We, we come from different backgrounds. Some of us were never raised in the church. Others of us have been in the church our whole lives. We, we may vote differently, think differently on certain topics. But at the end of the day, these are the essentials that we unify over. And we just wanted to be really clear about what those things were and why they are. Uh, last week, we had a wonderful conversation about the Holy Spirit, and it's something that we are just trying to continue to explore and practice. I'm so grateful for the Roundsons for being here today to lead us in worship. Can you, where, where, there you guys are at. So just thank you again for being here. Um, today, my, as we were driving home last night from my brother's house, Kathy goes, so what are you going to teach on tomorrow? And I said, the Bible. And she goes, yeah, but what are you going to teach on? And I said, the Bible. So today we're looking at tentpole number six, the Bible, um, as our core belief. What is the Bible? How do we understand it? So what are we teaching on today? The Bible. All right. Tentpole number six. The Bible is God's written message to all mankind, penned by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. Because it is inspired by God, it is truth without any mixture of error and is the primary source of wisdom and guidance for Christ followers. So that's our core belief. We're going to unpack that. Um, I want to let you know that we have a, a, quite a, a bit of conversation. We're going to try to tackle several things today, so I'm going to try to get through it quickly. But the first thing I want to just consider is this question of what is this? Because I know that early on in my faith, in my Christian walk, I, I didn't think a whole lot about where the Bible came from. I just accepted the fact that it was here. And in some ways, I almost approached it like it was something that God had written with his own finger, kind of like he did on the, the original tablets of the Ten Commandments. He wrote it in his finger in English, in modern English, so I can understand it. Then he bound it in this nice fake pleather that likes to shed all over the place with Jesus' words highlighted in red for me so I don't have to go looking for him. And, and, and then he just kind of drops it out of heaven into our laps. And of course, we know that that's not how it came to be, that in fact, the Bible is the product of 40 different authors on writing on three different continents over the course of about 1500 years. And I just want you to think for a moment about just how, how many cultural differences those writers would be writing from. Not only are they on different continents, they're in different centuries, different millennia. Think about how much things would change over the course of the beginnings of the writing in Genesis to the end in, in Revelation and some of the prison letters that were written. 
I mean, just to put this into context, the United States is less than 250 years old. And think about how much our culture has changed. In the 400 years since the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock and took some land that belonged to the indigenous populations as their own, imagine how much things have changed in that time. And we're talking 250 years versus 1,500 years. And here's the thing that's amazing to me is that in spite of all those cultural changes, in spite of all of those differences of, of perspective and, and, and how norms change and how you approach one another changes and how you um, even understand where the, how the world came to be as medicine begins to make its way in and scientific stuff starts happening, just consider how radically unified the Bible is in spite of all of that difference and in spite of all of that space and time. Because the truth is, even though they were writing from lots of culturally different perspectives, the heart of what they are writing about remains unified. This, the, the, the worldview, that this world was spoken into existence by God, and then he continued to be, participate in its formation. The, the understanding of our place in it and our relationship with him. The Bible is radically unified in the face of all of that time and all of that change. But I would not point to it beca- being the product of humanity, but rather the fact that it is still, even though it was written by human beings, it is still God's word. God is still actively participating in the formation of, in the writing of, and even in the consolidation of his word into the Bibles that we hold in our hands. There's a lot of verses that talk to God's participation in it. We're going to go to one that you know pretty well. Go ahead and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's right towards the end of your Bible. If you hit Revelation, you need to go left. If you are find yourself in like Philippians, Colossians, somewhere there, go right. And if you're in 1 Timothy, one more book to the right. 2 Timothy. Chapter 3, Paul is writing to one of his protégés, a guy named Timothy. I'm going to actually back up before that verse on the screen and just get a, a little bit of a running start here. Paul writes to Timothy in verse 14, As for you, I want you to continue in what you learned and became convinced of because you know these things from whom you learned it and how from your infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, let me pause here for a second. Did you notice what he said there? These scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through your faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't say these scriptures can save you. Rather, these scriptures point us to the one who can save us. These scriptures become like a lamp to our feet that guides us, a beacon or a a signpost on our journey, pointing us to the one who can ultimately save us. And then we come to the verse that we know so well in 2 Timothy 3. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's a ton of meat in this verse, and we could just unpack this the whole morning. But I want to lean into one word that is translated God-breathed up there. What does that mean? Some of your Bibles use the word inspired, but I love that term God breathed. What does that mean that God breathed the scriptures into being? Well, to answer that, let's back up to the first time that we read in scripture that God breathed into something. Do you remember what that is? Back there in Genesis. 
When God, who had been speaking the world into existence, changed it up on the sixth day when it came to his image bearers, you and me. And on that day, he got down on his knees and he scraped together the dust of the earth to form the first human being, Adam. And then he leans down and he breathes the breath of life into Adam's lungs, creating in humanity this beautiful synthesis of corruptible flesh and divine spirit. That's you and me. And when he did that, consider what that entailed. I'll tell you what it didn't entail. There are two extremes. On the one hand, it wasn't like he possessed the dust to become a a mud puppet that has to do everything that he dictates, right? He wasn't creating uh, an automaton that did what he described, what he programmed us to do. On the other hand, it wasn't like he just gave an inspiration into, you know, by breathing in it. It's not like he's a child who's blowing some air into a balloon and then lets it go and just watches it kind of fly out of control, right? Those are two extremes and neither of them is the case. What we read about is that God breathes his breath into the first human being and then he continues to walk with him and guide him and direct it, even giving him some directives like, hey, don't touch this fruit. And even after they disobey, still giving him directives, God continues to walk with humanity. So it's not like he forces us to do his bidding. We have free will. But at the same time, it's not like he just lets us do whatever we want and we go off the rails. It's somewhere in between. And when it came to God breathing the scriptures into being, it's the same thing. He avoids those two extremes. On the one hand, it doesn't mean that God dictates what he wants through those 40 authors that ultimately penned scripture. It wasn't like they were the first version of dragon speak or some dictation software where he was saying, okay, ready in the beginning, comma, now not coma, comma, God, that's me create, you know, it's not like he's doing that. If he had done that, then we would expect that it would be radically uniform. And why even use 40 different authors from 40 different perspectives? If you're just going to dictate what you want to say. But on the other hand, and and that's not the case, by the way, consider scriptures that the fact that so many of those authors, we see so much of their personality, so much of their, their own context comes through. Take, take Paul, for instance, here's Paul, who is a trained Pharisee. He's basically been trained to be an attorney, a theological attorney. And Paul writes like an attorney does. He's constantly referencing case law from the Old Testament to support whatever he's saying. He builds these long arguments. Some of them are long run-on sentences that can be very difficult for, for people to understand because he's building these long discussions. And then you've got Mark, John Mark, on the other hand, who's this untrained kid who's basically, his sentences are just short bullet points. Jesus did, did, Jesus did this, then he did this, then he did that, and then he did that. And that's how the book of Mark reads. Both of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but both of them retained their own personality, their own perspectives. So God doesn't simply dictate what he wants, but neither, on the other hand, does he go to the other extreme, where he just gives us a whiff of of inspiration, and then these guys go and write whatever it is they want, like that kid blowing up the balloon and letting it go. If that had been the case then these people would have been all over the place. And what they would have written would have been radically divergent. And we would expect to see a tremendous amount of conflict, particularly over the 1,500 years of it being written. 
And so what God does is somewhere in between where he doesn't dictate what he wants. He allows his authors to retain their personality, to retain their own writing style. But at the same time, he walks with them and guides them in the writing of those books. And I love the way that you don't have to turn here, but in uh, it's in Second Peter. And we'll put it up on the board here. Uh, in Second Peter, I love the way he articulates how scriptures came to be. And yet, once again, I'm going to back up one verse more than I have on the board here. Um, so I'm going to go to uh, verse 19 to begin with. He says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. And then in verse 21, what we have here. For prophecy never had its origin in, human, in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, no prophecy of Scripture had its origin in human will, like we just made it up or we, just did, we, we wrote down what we think God is like, our best guess. But rather, all those people wrote and spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit like what we were talking about last week as we talked about the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives and how we can't conjure up the Holy Spirit. We can't dictate what the Holy Spirit does. We can't even tell the Holy Spirit how he needs to lead. All we can do like ships is raise our sail and wait for the Holy Spirit to fill it. And until the Holy Spirit does it, we stay still. Now, we could try to get at the oars out. We could try to go somewhere. But we're going to go off course. But when the Holy Spirit comes and blows, he propels us. He guides us. He directs us. And that is precisely what, what Peter is saying. The Holy Scriptures were breathed by God as the Holy Spirit moved them to write. Does this make sense? I hope so. It's good. You don't sound all that convincing right now. Okay, so we've seen that scriptures have been breathed by God. And I know that I'm doing a woefully, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm skimming the surface. I'm trying to cover a lot of ground here. The scriptures were breathed into existence by God, but he allows his human authors to retain their humanity. They're not just dictation software, but he still guides and directs them by his Holy Spirit. But what is amazing to me also is that these same scriptures that are so unified despite the breadth of time that they were, they were written over, still speak into our existence, still resonate. You know, I, some, of, some of these scriptures were written 35 centuries ago. And yet they still challenge people living in the 21st century in a Western culture that's so radically different from the Eastern culture that spawned them. How do we understand that well once again the same spirit that was present in the formation of the scriptures by moving them forward to write is still present today as we read it uh, uh, go ahead and turn with me if you will uh, one book to the left of where you were there in in second timothy well two books let's go to hebrews hebrews chapter four And this is one you're probably familiar with. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says this, For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And a double-edged sword is very 
It is very sharp. It can cut very easily. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It cuts to the quick. You guys have experienced this, I would imagine, when you, when you read God's word. And it's like God is speaking directly into your life, even though it was penned thousands of years ago. How do we explain that? Well, it's not. The power is not contained by the, the printer that printed these books. Sorry, Charlie, that's not the case. It's not because of the binding. It's not because of the formatting or anything like that. It's not even necessarily the words on the page. Was it, what it is is God's Spirit continues to work and act to use God's Word that He inspired so long ago to, to challenge our hearts because the same Spirit that breathed life into Adam's lungs and made him alive. The same spirit that empowered Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. The same spirit that raised Jesus back to life. Still uses God's word. Still inhabits God's word. Still breathes life into God's word so that he can use it. Almost like you would a paring knife. To begin to whittle away the cancerous dry rot that begins to form in our hearts and in our minds because of this world that we live in, this sin-scarred world. This is a tool that God uses to shape and mold us. And he does it by his Holy Spirit reminding us of what God's word has said to us and challenging us. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said. Uh, as Jesus was preparing to go, he said, listen, I, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send another advocate Another helper that's just like me to be with you and walk with you. And then he says this in, in John chapter 16, I believe. Can you throw it up on the board for me? Yes, no, maybe so. Maybe not. I'll find it myself. In John chapter 16. I've got it in my notes, Dagnabbit. I know I've got it. He says this in John chapter 16. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. So, that same advocate, the Holy Spirit, that's been walking with me and empowering me through my earthly ministry, I'm going to send him and he's going to be with you and he will remind you of everything I taught and everything I did and what I was like. And this is the primary way that God uses to sharpen and refine us. Now, is this the only way that God speaks to us today? No, thankfully not. There is so much that God has to say to us. Sometimes he uses our circumstances. Good, hard, indifferent. He uses where we are. Sometimes he uses people to speak into our lives. Sometimes it's even on television that those, or, or, or on social media that God speaks to us. And yet, this is always right there in the middle as kind of that filter that helps us to recognize if it conflicts with what God's word says, then it's not from God. And that's a great way of you being able to challenge the myriad voices that are out there. God speaks to us. God challenges us. God's Holy Spirit allows circumstances and people and other things to, to be challenging and guiding us. But ultimately, God's word is that filter that helps us understand everything or that lens that helps us to recognize what is from God and what is not. So God's word is alive because the Holy Spirit makes it alive. And God's word was breathed into life 
by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and it continues to to speak to us today because God's Holy Spirit still continues to use it. And that's why we have the audacity to say that we believe it is truth without any mixture of error in it. But if that is the case, then how on earth can we account for all of the ways that people disagree about what the Bible actually says? If there is no error, if it doesn't contradict itself, then why on earth have so many people, even within the church, disagreed about what the Bible actually says? I remember in grad school, uh, my professor introduced me to a book called The Bible Tells Me So. And in it, the author documents the very disparate perspectives that people have used the Bible to support. So, for instance, during the Civil War, the South was using the Bible to support their retention of slaves, where the North was using scriptures to denounce the fact that they kept slaves and to try to argue that they needed to release them. Um, throughout, you know, ever since kind of the women's liberation movement, the Bible has been used both as a support to buoy women up as well as to hold them down. We have seen the Bible used for some horrific things, genocide. Even Hitler pointed to the Bible from time to time to support what he was doing, and it's ridiculous. So how can we account for bad behavior if God is good and he's the one who formed these scriptures and ultimately gave them to us? How can we account if scripture is truth without any mixture of error? How can we account for disagreement even within the body of Christ? And I would like to suggest to you that it does not actually have to do with God's word so much as it has to do with how we read and interpret God's word. And let me explain what I mean by that. A lot of us would like to say, I don't interpret the Bible. I just read the Bible and I take the Bible literally. But we are incapable of reading the Bible without interpreting the Bible at the same time. Even the very Bibles that you hold in your hand, unless you are reading in the original Hebrew, the original Greek... Every Bible you hold is already the product of interpretation because it was not actually written in modern English. I know that's shocking to many of you. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, but not in English, which means that when you open your Bible and you begin to read, you are already picking up something that is at the end of one translation and interpretation process where a large amount of people, in some cases, or sometimes just one person, in the case of some of those lesser-known um, translations, have sat down and say, what do I think this is saying? How are we going to take this word in Hebrew and translate it into English in such a way that it captures not only the, the, the meaning, but the heart of what they're trying to say? So every translation you have is at some point the end of a translation and interpretation process. And that's where your interpretation begins, by the way. Because after you open this up and you start to read, what you may not be aware of is that you are already reading it through a cultural lens. That warps your ability to understand what you read because everything you read is seen through the filter of your experiences, your context, the, the people that have been a part of your life. And let me just give you three quick examples. I hope they're quick. Three quick examples of ways that our filter, our context, shapes the way we understand Scripture. We call God Father. The scripture calls God our fa- Father. And so that cannot help but affect the way that we understand God because we have all had earthly fathers. 
And for some of us, that's helpful because our fathers were awesome and they were supportive and loving and grace-giving and all that kind of stuff. But for many of us, our fathers were not. For many of us, our fathers were hard, strong disciplinarians or they were absentee altogether. And so when we read father, for some of us, it actually hinders us from being able to embrace God as our father because we have not had a positive you know, experience with our father. Another one. Let's talk about fear. We come across that word fear as in the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And you think, in our culture, fear is something to be avoided. The last thing I want my boys to do is be afraid of me, right? So why on earth would, would the writers affirm the need for us to be afraid or fear God? But understand that for the Hebrews, in the Hebrew mindset, that word fear, yare, is not speaking about being afraid or being, you know, uh, terrified of God. That word fear actually gets to the heart of being a, a reverential respect for someone who is more powerful, infinitely so, and, 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 and greater than we are ourselves. And let me just try to put this in a way that, that maybe we can understand it today. We've been going to the beach a lot because the water has finally warmed up. And I take my boys to the beach. And there's some waves. They're not huge waves yet, but they're coming, I hope. Um, and, and we take my boys down to the beach. And I do not want them to be afraid of the waves. Because if they were afraid of them, they wouldn't go in them. And I want them to enjoy the waves as much as their dad does. But at the same time, I recognize that those waves in the ocean is far more powerful than my sons will ever be. And those waves, if my boys don't respect the power of those waves, they will hurt my sons. And I want to help them avoid being hurt. So I don't want them to be afraid of the waves, but I want them to respect the power of the waves. Does this make sense? Because in the same way, the authors of the Proverbs are saying, the author of the Proverbs is saying, hey, listen, the fear of God, the Yare Elohim, is the beginning of wisdom, recognizing who God is and who I am, that He is far greater than I will ever be, is the beginning of wisdom. Because when I begin to recognize that God is God and I am not, I'm not going to demand that God orient Himself to my life and that He gives me what I want. Rather, I will begin to orient my life to His. When I start doing that, I will begin to live the life that He intended for me. And that's why it's the beginning of wisdom. Is this making sense? One last one. Time after time in Scripture, we read the word you. And when we read that, let me give you a couple examples. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Or you are the body of Christ. You are a holy nation. You are, um, you know... I, for I, 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 you know, those God foreknew, he is predestined to, to adoption and all that stuff in Christ. You are sons and daughters of God. And we hear you, and when we read the word you in Scripture, our tendency is to read it as if it's speaking directly to us as an individual. Which makes sense, because we live in, without a doubt, the single most individualistic society in the world in history. We're the only... Society, the only time where we have had entire um, web pages that are devoted to telling the world what we're thinking, where we're going, what we're eating, what we're wearing. What, you know, uh, we have YouTube, ironically, that, that we have whole channels devoted to us telling the world what we're doing or showing off our ukulele skills. And even within the church, 
We get in on this because we constantly harp on your own personal relationship with Jesus, right? Or the first question we always ask when we read scripture is, well, what does this mean to you? So it's no wonder when it comes to hearing the word you that 21st century Americans would say, God's talking to me. And if it makes a promise to you, it means God's making a promise to me. He knows the plans he has for me and he's going to prosper me. Oh, that's awesome. And we even have an idea of what prosper means. It's very 21st century. He's going to give me that house. And if I already have a house, he's going to give me a bigger house. But we need to remember the fact that in the formation of the scriptures and that Eastern culture that the authors are writing to, it's a radically different culture that is very much the opposite of an individualistic society like 21st century Western culture is. Because more often than not, they would not identify themselves as an individual different from their parents, different from the rest of their family, different from the rest of their tribe or people group. They identified themselves as a part of a much larger whole, as a member of a family. And even the word family, by the way, is not... Our idea of a nuclear family, mom, dad, two kids, maybe two and a half kids, and a dog or a cat, preferably a dog. The same. When they talk family, they're talking the whole family unit that's a huge amount of people, including slaves, by the way, in that culture. So when you begin to get into in 1 Peter and Ephesians, they talk about families, husbands, wives, kids, father, you know, slaves and slave owners, they're actually talking about the whole family unit there. And whenever, so whenever the authors talk about you in scripture, nine times out of 10, they're not talking about you individually. They're talking about you corporately. And when we talk about being adopted in Christ, they're not talking about an individual God choose. They're talking about a people being chosen in Christ. Okay, there's a whole lot of stuff that we could unpack. But do you get the idea that when we read scripture, when we hear words, we cannot help but see it through the filter of our own cultural lens? Does this make sense? Which is why it is imperative that we begin to grapple with the lenses. Because here's the problem. We're not just looking through our lens, but we're actually reading something that was written through a different cultural lens, a culture that's very different from ours. And so we need to grapple with both of these lenses if we're not going to garble and miss the heart of what God is saying to us today because we don't do the work to actually kind of become more aware of our lenses. How do we do this? I'm glad that you asked. In your handouts, you were given this paper. It should be in your bulletins. If you don't have one, Charlie, can you? If you don't have one, raise your hand and Charlie will bring you one. Or Jeff will bring you one. Okay, we've got a couple. All right. Many of you have seen this before. This is bar none my favorite tool for interpreting scripture. This is something I stole from a a pastor at this little, very unknown church down the street in Saddleback uh, named Rick Warren. This is, uh, you know, basically think of a baseball diamond. That's what we're going to do. We're going to run the bases whenever we interpret scripture. Step number one, we need to identify what the text says. Have you guys noticed, by the way, that we are busy that there's a lot of things going on, even like after church today, we have like 12 things that you get to be invited to do, right? Um, we're a busy people, so we don't have a whole lot of time to actually just sit down and, and meditate on God's word. And so what do we do? We, we grab a devotional, but, but it's still got scripture in it, right? It's got maybe a verse or even sometimes half a verse, 
But it's got that scripture in it, and then the writer then takes that scripture and riffs off of it to make their point. But here's the problem. What they've done is they've taken a verse, ripped it out of its literary context, the, the words and, and the, the unit of thought that it was contained in, that we've taken it out, and we've stuck it on a page, and then we've riffed off of it. And you guys know if you've watched any sort of like news television where they are quoting people or they're showing a video clip of somebody, a politician speaking, you know how easy it is when you take a couple of words or a sentence out of the context of the whole discussion and they quote that, you know how easy it is to twist somebody's words and make them suggest that they are saying something other than what they are really saying. And when we rip verses or parts of verses or a couple of words out of the context of the unit of thought, it is just as easy to twist God's word to say and support anything that we want. Some of us have become very selective readers of scripture. We'll read the verses that support our perspective, but we'll ignore the ones that don't support it. Some of us will just get our time with God through our devotionals. And so we get half a verse or one verse, and then we get somebody's thoughts. How do we avoid this? You need to read it in context. So that's not to suggest you cannot read my utmost for his highest or Jesus calling or whatever, or even the, um, uh, our daily bread that we have here. They're wonderful. They give you a verse or two to read. Here would be my recommendation. So as not to allow it to be taken out of context. Whatever it's quoting, go to that chapter that the verses contain in and read the whole chapter. So you get the flow of thought. And if you start that chapter and the chapter starts as therefore or some other indication that you're jumping in mid-thought, then back up even further, maybe to the chapter before, to the next section break. Just so you can get the breadth of what is being said so that when you come to that verse, it can still speak to you. But first you need to understand what it's saying in the context of what's around it. Are we, am I making sense? Yeah. That's step one. Base one. Base two. You then need to do a little bit of work to understand what the original audience would have heard it to say. One of the very best books that helps me in this is, is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, written by a guy named Gordon Fee. Um, and what I love about it is he just starts to unpack how we approach Scripture. And this is something that Fee said in that, there's too many notes here. My goodness. I have no idea. Can we throw it up there? Thank you. God's word to us was first of all his word to them, meaning the original audience that it was written to. If they were going to hear it, it could only have come through events and in language that they could have understand. Here's the point that Fee is driving towards. We, before we can ever ask, what does this mean to me? We first must ask, what did this mean to them? Because God's word to us today can't mean something radically different than it did to the original audience. Now, will we understand it differently two centuries or, or you know, 2,000 years or 3,500 years from the day that it was originally written down on paper? Sure. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have helicopters. They didn't have Ricky Lake. I don't, she's not around anymore, is she? Whatever. You know, they didn't, they didn't have, I <laughs> don't have any idea where that came from. <sighs> Or Arsenio Hall, for that matter. Let's just keep it consistent, right? They didn't have any of these. I just dated myself so badly. 
Uh, they didn't have any of these things that we have to grapple with. And so first and foremost, we have to go, what did, how would their ears have understood it in their context? Well, what kind of question should we ask in order to understand it? First, who wrote it, right? Who's the author? Not Ricky Lake, not Arsenio, not even Oprah. Who said, who wrote it? What context were they writing within? What was going on in their life? Paul wrote a lot of his letters from prison. That's an important thing to remember. Secondly, who are they writing to? And what was going on in their world? Which will help us then ask, how would they have heard it in their context? Only after we've done that can we then go to the third question, which is, okay, what does this mean to me? What is this saying to me in light of what it said to them? Now, some of you are into baseball. Some of you have kids who are starting to play baseball. And the first time a kid goes up to bat in baseball and they hit the ball, they're so excited. Sometimes you'll see a kid run to third base because they just, their, their frontal lobe is shut off. They're super excited that they actually connected. And so they just run. And sometimes they go to third base. And the first time they do that, we think that's cute. But if they're in high school or college or the majors and they keep running to third base, they're out. And in the same way, as somebody who's been in life groups for 20, 25 years, um, I have found that our natural propensity as human beings, when we read a scripture, is the first question we ask is, hey, what do you hear this saying to you? That's running to third base. And it's natural initially when we open the Bible to do that. But if we are still doing it years later, and that's the first and only question that we ask, we are out. We have missed the point because what we're doing is we're skipping two whole bases. And now we're, we're just taking scriptures and shoveling them into our context. And we completely closed our eyes to the fact that this was written in a different context. And we're putting ourselves in danger of misreading God's word. Does that make sense? So before we can ask, what is this saying to me today? We first have to say, what is this saying? What did it mean to the original audience in their context? Okay, what is this saying to me in light of the context that it was written into and in light of my context? And then once we've done that, we can finally come to home plate, which is, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm here in the heart of this. God, what do you want to say to me? And that answer may be different for every single one of us based upon where we find ourselves. And that is completely where the Holy Spirit begins or continues to just use God's word to begin shaving off parts of our brokenness and our sinful nature. Now, I recognize I've already run out of time, but if you will, can we just run the bases one time very, very quickly? I don't promise this will go quickly. This is going to go as quickly as I can. Who here has ever heard somebody say, God will never give you more than you can handle? Anyone? Who here has ever heard this pastor say, God will never give you more than you can handle? Probably some of you, because I probably said it from this stage. Okay? Many of us have shared that same thing with somebody, that, that thought. God will never give you more than you can handle. And we are positive that it comes from Scripture. So, let's run the bases with the verse that says, God will never give you more than you can handle. Well, the problem is I haven't actually been able to find that Scripture in Scripture. But I found one that sounds remarkably close. So if you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. It's right towards the end of your Bible. And we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Go to chapter 10. 
And I am going to begin reading in the, the almost the very, I'll just read all of verse 13, although what we're quoting is only kind of riffing off of the last half of verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That doesn't sound anything like. I mean, it sounds similar, but what on earth does temptation have to do? We're talking about trials. God will never give you more than you can handle. What are we talking about temptation for? Let's run the bases. Go ahead and go to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the... Okay, hold on. This is obviously the continuation of a thought. We're jumping in midstream. Let's back up just a little bit more. Let's back up to chapter 9, verse 24. That's the next section break in my Bible, so let's just try that. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last But we do it to get a crown that will last. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself may not be disqualified. And if we've gone back just a little bit further, it's where Paul says, hey, by the way, I become all things to all people that I might win a few. I want the world to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then right on the heels of that, he says, I discipline myself. We go into training so that while I'm preaching the gospel, I myself won't be disqualified. And then from there, he points to the people of Israel and he says, listen, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, and this is in chapter 10 now, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. The the original Israelites coming out of slavery saw God work. They saw the sea part. They saw the fire and they saw the cloud. They were led through it. And yet, let's jump down. I'm just going to hurry up to verse 6. And yet, nevertheless, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things like they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. For it's written that people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So don't be idolaters like they were. And do not commit sexual immorality. The word is porneia. It covers a whole wide swath of things, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We shouldn't test Christ. Don't put God to the test, as some of them did, and they were killed by snakes. And do not grumble against God. God, Moses, why did you bring us into the wilderness to die? Back in Egypt, we had pots of meat we got to sit around. So don't grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Now, verse 11. Now we're getting close to the verse that we were quoting. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to mankind. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And I'm going to go one more verse in verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So can you see that that verse we like to quote and say, God won't give you more than you can handle is actually talking about a temptation. And he's talking into, hey, you've got to be disciplined. 
You have got to run the race as somebody who actually wants to win, which means you must discipline yourself. Don't be like those Israelites who saw God move and yet turned their back on him and got and were drawn to, you know, the pots of meat they had back in Egypt or, or, or grumbling against God or sexual immorality or any of these kind of things. Don't be like that. Listen, temptations are going to come, but God will never give you more than you can handle and he'll always provide a way out. That's the context. Now let's go, to, let's go to the second base. What did this actually mean to the original audience? Well, keep this in mind. Paul is writing to Christians living in Corinth, which is a pagan city that is a melting pot of lots of different perspectives. Lots of different uh, idols that people would give themselves to. There was sexual immorality that was rampant. There was idolatry and, and, and a greed for more. There were things that they were turning to left and right that were kind of like siren calls, wooing them away from Christ to place their faith in something else. And Paul is saying, do not be conformed to the culture that you find yourself in. Keep your eyes on Christ. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. He is the one you follow. Even though you try to become all things to all people, do not be conformed to society. And in the midst of saying that, he says, listen, God is not going to allow you. You're going to encounter temptation, but God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. He will always provide a way out. Just try, just avoid idolatry. That's, that's We're doing really quick. That's base two. Now we can ask the question, okay, what does this say to us today? Well, when I think about it, we live in a culture that's very similar to Corinth, don't we? We live in a time and an age where there are lots of things that woo us and say, hey, this will make you complete. Be like us. What we celebrate becomes the norm. All you need to do is go online or go on television for five minutes and you will see lots and lots of things that are celebrated that are very counter Christ's heart. All you need to do is just pay attention to the amount of advertisements you're inundated with all day long that says you are deficient. All you need is this to be happy. This will satisfy you. We live in a time that is very similar to Corinth. And what I think Paul would be saying to us is be aware that you're going to be inundated with temptation to run to things other than Christ, to find your identity, to find your comfort, and you must resist it. But don't worry. No temptation is going to hit you that is uncommon to mankind, and God will always provide a way out if you choose it, because you always have a choice. And now, having based our understanding of that scripture on running the bases, we come home and say, okay, Holy Spirit, what do you have to say to me? What do I need to hear? Maybe it has something to do with some, an idol that you've been running to, something that you ran to to find life, and in fact, instead it has enslaved you and gotten its meat hooks into you. Or maybe you just feel overwhelmed. I don't know. I don't know. And, and Brian, you guys, why don't you guys come on up, uh, worship team? I, I don't know what the how the Holy Spirit will speak to you, but the the invitation is to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you and say, God, what do you have to say to me in this or in any passage that you read after you've run the bases? That's home plate. Is just sitting with God and sitting with His Word and saying, What do you want to say to me? 
One last thought. Can you imagine how different, can you see how different this is as opposed to buying into the belief that what Paul is saying is that God will never give you more than you can handle? Do you see how different uh, that interpretation is? And can you imagine going through life, holding on to the, the mistaken promise that God will never give you more than you can handle because I can guarantee you there are people sitting in this room right now who have experienced God giving you way more than you can handle. Some of you are carrying that around right now. Some of you are carrying around a prognosis that that you are staring your mortality in the face. And we're not talking years, we're talking months, maybe weeks. Some of you are, are, are recognizing that your children that you want the most for have a, a diagnosis that they're going to have to grapple with. And it doesn't mean they have no future. It just means their future might be different from what you wanted for them. Maybe it's, you know, depression. Maybe it, it's autism. Maybe it's ADD. Maybe it's something else. And you're just going, oh, my goodness, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help. What happens when somebody that we love is driving home from work and they get in a car accident and they're taken from us like that? We don't even have the opportunity to say goodbye. What then? May I humbly suggest to you that God often gives us more than he can, or than we can handle. Often. And if we have, have hung our faith on the belief that God will never do that, then when that happens, what happens to our faith? When that hook crumbles and we realize that it's not true. Because we have built our faith upon a faulty assumption about scripture that it does not speak to. Now, does God's word speak to trials? You betcha. A lot. This would not be the passage I would go to to have a conversation about the trials we encounter. If we were going to go to a passage, I'd probably go to John chapter 16, where Jesus, or John chapter 15, where Jesus says, hey, listen, in this world you will have trouble. You will have trials. But you can take heart in the fact that I've overcome the world. In other words... The brokenness of this world will not get the last word, even if, even if our friend who is battling cancer and, and, and has been doing this um, lemonade stand to try to raise money for her, her care, even if the drugs don't work and she ultimately dies, her cancer doesn't get the last word. Even if... At some point, Tony's doctors are no longer able to help him to continue to breathe, and he ultimately ceases to breathe. Every one of us is going to taste death at some point, in some way. Even if our kids never have a normal life like we expected them, even if they're not the leaders that we wanted them to be, even if our marriages ultimately do break apart, even if we don't get the job, even if we don't get the girl, even if we don't get the house, In this world, you will have trouble. But you can take heart in the fact that the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of our bodies does not get the last word. Do you see how that speaks a different promise to us? Then God will never give you more than you can handle because it's not true. He will often give us more than we can handle. But he will never give us more than he can handle. So this, let's, let's close this way. I would imagine that there are some of us sitting here this morning who are facing something more than we can handle. We have a heavy weight on our shoulders. 
And for you this morning, we as your family just want to come alongside of you and we want to pray with you. So if that's you, if, you've, if you recognize that right now you're facing more than you can handle, would you just stand up where you're at? You don't have to come forward, just stand up. You don't even have to tell us what it is, I'm not going to ask. Would you just be courageous enough to say, God and family, I'm carrying something more than I can handle. And those of us who are seated, we are their family. We love them, and we have the opportunity to intercede with our Father God for them today. So if there's somebody standing near you or standing far from you and you want to be with them, would you please just move towards them and lay a hand on them? And we're going to pray. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to guide us in our prayer. You don't have to know what it is. You don't have to ask them what it is. Just start praying as the Spirit leads. And if you don't know what to pray, then be silent until you have a prompting from the Spirit. Here's the best part. Scripture reminds us that the Holy Spirit actually even interprets our groanings and takes those. Sometimes when we don't even know what to pray, the Holy Spirit does, and he's the one who ultimately takes our prayers to the Father. So if you just need to groan for your brother or your sister, then do so. Let's pray.